If there is pain in your life and you are having a hard time accepting it and believing that God is good and that He's actually using it and that He loves you and that He hears you, then this sermon's for you. So I know that's the case with me quite often. When tough times come, when they have come in life, you kind of ask yourself, how in the world can this be good? Why in the world would a good God do this to one of his friends? Why doesn't he show up and help me? I think Zechariah and Elizabeth would have uttered those same things. Sometimes misery happens and God fixes it quite quickly. Maybe in a week or two, he comes through and he fixes what ails you and you're like, ah, God, you're really good. And then sometimes he allows it to go on forever, on and on, year after year, decade after decade. And that's when it really gets tough. And sometimes all you can do is say, God, help me believe. Let's read the text together. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day when these things take place. This is because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. People were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. 
For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah and Elizabeth were suffering saints. Saints. Children who grew up in the covenant community. We know that both of their families came from priestly lines. That means they were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They were both given biblical godly names that give tribute to God. They had a great foundation. As they matured and it became time for them to look or their families to look for each of them to find the proper spouse, they were not unequally yoked. They both married very well. They had a helper above who gave them a helper on the earth. It proves itself through the story that Zachariah and Elizabeth were most fortunate that they married within the household of faith. At the age of 25, I think, there's some different texts in the Bible. There, that's when Zechariah would have entered into his priesthood. He was ordained into the ministry. That means this is a family who was raised in the covenant community. It became their own. And now he became a leader, a minister, a priest, a pastor. And she was a pastor's wife. We see that they were people like us, that they were full of sin. There's no one who's not. And yet the Bible, the inspired word of God, looks at them and says they're righteous. They're blameless. And they walk and they keep and they obey the commands of God. This is what God does. He comes to sinful people. He shows them in the Old Testament through the sacrifices that he is the one who atones and forgives sin and declares people to be saints. And then his Holy Spirit helps them walk saintly. And that's what they did. So these were the real deal. These weren't like people who preach one thing and, and live another way intentionally. They're exemplary saints. But then Luke uses that but of contrast. But they suffered. Now, implicitly they suffered politically. These were the days of Herod, the text tells you. Israel had no independence, no national sovereignty. They were like a car that you sell, that someone else sells, that someone else sells, and about seven owners down the road, it's been run hard and ragged. God sold Israel into Assyria. They sold them to Babylon. We got the Persians. We got the Greeks. And now the Romans have it. And Rome doesn't even want to mess with it. So Rome gives it pretty much to this dog named Herod. Oh, Herod the Great. And Herod has his way with the people, runs them into the ground. So they know what it's like to suffer politically. And they know what it's like to suffer ecclesiastically. I mean, it was about 800 years or so when the Holy Spirit took off, the Shekinah glory left the temple. It was like 600 years or so ago when finally God sent raiding people to come in and they looted the temple, then they desecrated, then they demolished it. God no longer had the spirit within Israel in the Holy of Holies. He no longer had a temple. Sure, there were some good days when God allowed it to be rebuilt and some revivals happened with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. But for the most part, those godly men who remembered the old days, it says they just cried because they remembered the former glory. It had been about 400 years since God sent a prophet. I think Malachi would have been the last one possibly. 
And yeah, maybe he spoke here or there, but no big revivals, no big movements. And at the current time, even though we have Zechariah ministering in the church, it's just a horrible place. You have this temple, this edifice that is glorious, but it's been, it's been built by a pagan dog who built it to bring glory to himself. And so it's called Herod's Temple. And if you look at the current establishment, the leaders that were there, it reminds you of the Mafia Don and his made men, as you have Annas and Caiaphas and those kind of guys that will prove prominent in the Gospels. Horrible leaders. So they know what it's like to suffer politically. They know what it's like to suffer ecclesiastically, but they also know what it's like to suffer physically. For Elizabeth is barren. She wants to have children, but the Lord has not opened her womb. Because of this, she suffers socially. That ancient culture, babies, especially male babies, were the ticket. You can remember stories of like King Henry VIII. He was like interested, I got to find me a wife who gives me my child. Or we even talk in modern language about the heir with despair. This idea that you, you need that heir. Well, in that day, we know that the Bible says that when God opens the womb, that's the blessing of the Lord. We also know in the scripture that sometimes he says, if I'm going to pour out my curses on you, I will close your wombs. And that led some people with this weird anti-prosperity theology to look at people who couldn't get pregnant and saying, there must be something wrong with you. And they looked side-eyed at such people. Jewish law even gave the man the right to divorce a bride who could not give him a child assuming that it's always the woman's fault, which would be a wrong assumption. So they suffer barrenness, and they suffer socially. And then I think some of you know very well what it's like to suffer emotionally when God hurts you in that way. As the years passed, there would have been a hole in their heart over having no one to call their own, no one to tuck in at night, no one to read Bible stories to. You want to pass along your name, your God, and your possessions, and you have future dreams of grandchildren and great-grandchildren and somebody maybe being able to help provide and care for you when you get your, to the older ages. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah, a barren woman, she called her situation the bitterest of sorrows. I think Elizabeth knows what she's talking about. I think some here know what she's talking about. And I think they both suffered spiritually. How many times had they cried out, where are you? What are you doing? Why will you not answer? Why will you not come to the rescue? What have we done wrong? How long? Why have we not tried to serve you? Do you not care? But yet these are suffering saints. They carry on. Years of this. They are now at older age of some sort. And God was faithful to them. He did not allow them to walk away from each other, and He did not allow them to walk away from Him. And where do we find this suffering couple? Still serving, still carrying on, still worshiping. I know people are like this in the room today. 
I don't know all the stories. I think you ladies have your own backdoor communication channels where you care and pray for your friends, our friends, my friends, who cannot bear children. We have people here who have been diagnosed with cancer. People here who have found their spouse unfaithful. People here who want to find a spouse, but whether they be divorced or single and never married, they, the Lord hasn't opened that door as quickly as for some others. We have people experiencing the pain of dementia. We have people in this church entering the holiday season without a good paying job. In the words of one of my friends, we keep praying for our children, some of us who live in Prodigalville. And some here have lost a loved one. Many in this room are like Zechariah and Elizabeth, suffering saints, hurting, questioning, worshiping, and just trying to keep it together. That's when God shows up. We have informed saints. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they carry on. It's time now for the, the tribe, I mean, the, the class of Abijah, the clan of Abijah to go and serve. They did this twice a year. Their tour of duty was to go to Jerusalem from wherever they lived in Israel. And there they would take care of the temple and lead in worship. So again, Zechariah kisses his wife and heads to the holy city. When he arrives, they have this ritual they went through where they would throw their names in a hat of sorts, draw lots, and that would determine where you were going to serve. And so some people would serve as butchers, some as baptizers, some as bankers. Priests were appointed to keep the fire, remove the ashes, clean the vessels, collect the offerings, read the scriptures, and lead in song. And then three special people were chosen to enter the sacred place, not the Holy of Holies where you only go once a year, but between the curtains. And those three men, one would take care of the table of showbread, one would take care of the candlesticks, and one would go to the altar of incense. Well, in the providence of God, the name Zechariah was one of those three. He was chosen and the formalities began. He would have been stripped of all of his clothing. He would have been rebaptized again. He would have been then clothed in a plain linen garment. And then he would have walked into the holy place carrying coals, hot coals from the altar of sacrifice. There, one fellow would have taken care of the candles. Another fellow would have taken care of the bread. When they were done, they would then turn and leave, leaving him alone to present now the coals on the altar, to pour the incense on top of the coals, and then would come this huge cloud of smoke and this fragrance that was so sweet. The recipe was designed by God Almighty. It represented that God loved the prayers of his people. God loved the prayers of his people as long as they were what? Fueled with the fire that comes from the sacrifice. And so here he is praying, and while he's praying, all of a sudden, an angel appears. At this point, he doesn't know which angel this is. I wouldn't know which angel appears. I have pictures in my little kids' Bibles of angels, but don't know how reliable those are. He's overwhelmed with fear. But then comes the good communique, the information from God. Now, this is Gabriel speaking but Gabriel is a messenger sent from God. So it's just like God is speaking. And what does God say? 
Do not be afraid. Some of you need to be afraid if you see an angel. For they're warring spirits who come to exercise God's damnation. But Zechariah, that's not why I'm here. You and God are tight. We're good. Secondly, God knows your name. He knows who you are. He intimately knows you. He knows your bride as well. God knows your suffering. He knows all your suffering. Your wife's barrenness, maybe your impotency, all of your heartache. And he's heard your prayers and God has power to act and miraculously show up and help. And then here's the big kicker, number six. He's doing far more than you ever thought possible. I mean, you think this is just about you not being able to have a child, and now maybe you think this is about you having a son. But God has been working behind the scenes for millennia, bringing it all to culmination right now, and you have no clue why God has let you suffer till now. God has determined your son's name. His name is John, which means God's gift or God is gracious. Zechariah, as a scholar, knows when God starts giving out names, those are special people. Your son will have this lifestyle where he's not going to be filled with much wine. He's not going to be filled with any wine. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. Man, your son is special. The Holy Spirit's going upon, falling upon him in the womb. And his legacy? Let me tell you who this son of yours is. And Gabriel quotes from the book of Malachi. It's on the screens behind me. This is what Malachi said 400 years ago. The day is coming for you who fear my name the Son of Righteousness, that's Jesus, shall rise with healing in its wings. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Are you getting this? Malachi said there's coming a day when the Son of Righteousness is coming, but before he comes, comes this Elijah figure this Elijah figure is going to bring great joy to you, to the people. He's going to bring about revival, turning hearts towards one another, turning hearts towards God. This Elijah 2.0, he's coming. And he's your son. And he's going to be considered great before the Lord. I just love that. There's Herod the Great, who is great in the eyes of Caesar who is great in the eyes of all of his citizens, because he has to be great, because if they don't pretend he's great, he's going to kill them, who's really great in his own eyes. But from the word of the Lord, here's John. And he's great in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't this incredible news? That God is saying the same thing to suffering saints today. He's looking at you and he's saying, ah, you don't need to be afraid. We're tight. I like you. You like me. We're in this together because of Jesus Christ. And I know you. I know everything about you. I know your names. I know all of your pain, your sorrow. I know your prayers. I write them in my journal. I know your tears. I keep them in my bottle. And I have the power. 
to do mighty things. So keep talking to me in prayer. You don't know when I'm going to show up. But you do need to know this. Even when it seems like he's not working, he is. And you may not understand. And you may have all these friends like Job who are trying to tell you what God is doing as you hurt. Forget that. You may not know, they might not know, but I know, and I never waste your pain. I am working. So you who are really suffering right now, you believe in this with all your heart? It's okay for you to say no. I mean, it's not okay for you to say no. It's understandable that you say no, that we say no. No, just no. No, 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 no. I don't understand what you're doing. And frankly, I don't even know how this is going to be the case. How am I supposed to know that what you're saying is true? That's exactly what Zechariah asks, which leads us from suffering saints to informed saints to disbelieving saints. Now, Mary will say, how are we going to bring this about? She had a question of means, but that's not what Zechariah is asking. He's asking a question of source, a question of truth. How are we going to know this is true? He's doubting. He's disbelieving. He's giving his rationale. I know what I see. I'm an old man. She's an older lady. We've been at this several times. We've gone on this. We've been down this road. And I'm just not buying what you're selling right now. Like Gideon, he says, I need a sign, which is not something that people of faith do when they get communication from God. They receive his communication because he never lies. He's always true. He's doubting. He's a frail minister. Sin has won the battle in his heart and mind. He shows himself to be a man of faith who lacks faith. He shows himself to be a believer who disbelieves. It's in the text. I'm not being too harsh on him. Luke says he disbelieves. Gabriel says because you did not believe. Again, I find myself like Adam and Eve who doubted God in the garden. Like Abraham and Sarah who doubted God's timing. I find myself like Zechariah. How am I going to know that you're really keeping your promises? As we keep reading in the Bible, you're going to find that John the Baptist doubted in prison. You're going to find this guy named Doubting Thomas, who is just one of 12 doubting disciples. Even those in the early church are found in the book of Acts praying for the release of Peter. And when God shows up and answers and Peter's knocking on the door and the servant girl goes and goes back and says, he's here, God answered our prayer. How do they respond? With disbelief. This is a chronic sin problem that we have. We are believers who disbelieve. And how does God respond? I think he responds the same way to us as he did to Zechariah with grace. We're graced saints. Gabriel reminds Zechariah of the one before him. I, I think that you almost need to start this with, really? How am I going to know this is true? Did I just hear you say that? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> You're in the Holy of Holies. 
You're offering up prayers to God and all of a sudden an angel appears and you're talking with an angel? I'm Gabriel. I'm just not any run-of-the-mill angel. I'm the man. You've read about me. I showed up back in the days of Daniel. I've been doing this for a long, long time. I'm an angel of angels. I'm at some higher level than other angels. I'm coming back again at the end. I, how, how can this be true? I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of Almighty God, and God has sent me here to talk to you. And I have this good news for you. He disbelieves Zechariah's disbelief. I cannot believe we're having this conversation. So you want a sign. How are we going to know if God's really talking? Okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It'd be better for you not to talk for a while. I'm going to make you mute. And if you skip ahead to another chapter, when he finally has a baby, they sign to him wanting to know what he wants to call the baby. If he could hear, they wouldn't have to sign to him. Which means I think from my studies that he has a good chance of being not only mute, but deaf. And you're going to be like this, but here's the good news. I love this. Your faithfulness has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. And your faithlessness has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. For God is faithful regardless of your level of faithfulness or faithlessness because this isn't a contract between the two of you. He has showed up to bless you, to bless your bride, to bless your country, to bless the world. And he's going to do what he's going to do for you in the world regardless of your response. And the sign or the discipleship tool, or the discipline, however you want to look at it, of being mute and maybe deaf, it's temporary. It's going to go away. You want a sign that will help you increase your faith that you really did talk to an angel from God? You got it. And so every time he now starts to speak, he's reminded, I'm this way because my God loves me and wants to show me and grace me and help me understand how I ought to have faith in him. The same is true for you. The promises represented at this table have nothing to do with your faithfulness. If you've been faithful this week, woo, give yourself a hand. You should be. If you've been faithless this week, Give yourself a boo. That's bad. It really is. But my faithfulness or faithlessness has nothing to do with God, for he is faithful even when I'm unfaithful, which is why Jesus Christ had to come and pay the price and offer me gospel promises based solely on his performance without any conditional obedience on my part. Meanwhile, back in the courtyard, the people wait. This is where we see joyful saints. 
According to the tradition, the priest's prayer were supposed to be like my sermons. Short and to the point. Get in, get it done, get back home. I mean, get back out of the courtyard, deliver the final benediction. We got to get home for lunch. He goes on and on and on. People, they wait and wait and wait. They worry, they worry, they worry. They wonder what in the world is going on. And finally, when he comes out, they notice something is just not kosher. Something's not right. Could it be the glow? I don't know if he glowed or not, but maybe. Maybe his hair's standing on end. Could it be the smirk on his face? like, Or the muted deafness? At this point, I think it's kind of funny. All right, we've all played charades before. If I would have thought about this earlier, I could have asked Dan Polster, who likes putting together some different dramas. and We could have done charades where one party kind of acts it out and the other person has to guess what's going on. And as they're talking back, the person's making more charades. But have we ever played charades where the person can't hear or talk? So now you're trying to describe what's going on, and they're on the other side now, and you're just going back and forth. Now, how do you get across, I was just in there, an angel, I don't know how this works, but somehow he communicates and they get the idea that a vision of an angel has happened and something special is going on. I don't know how he's going to communicate the whole Malachi thing that John the Baptist is going to be Elijah 2.0. I don't know. He finishes his work, though, and then he heads home. Once again, you got to laugh at this. How do you explain to your wife, who's aged and older, Come on, where are we going? Bed. Why? God. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of funny to me. But somehow he communicates. And they come together. And the Lord opens her womb. And he does what he promises. And for five months, Elizabeth keeps herself private. Was she just an introvert, maybe? Was she just protecting that child and didn't want to go anywhere? Was she concerned maybe for her reputation? Because she hadn't been able to get pregnant with that guy, but he's been gone away and now she is. Was she concerned that maybe we just need to wait because therefore... If the Messiah is coming, we need to wait to hear of his arrival before we make a big deal about the one who heralds his arrival? Or was she just concerned and wanted to get past that point when a lot of miscarriages happened? I don't know. But she keeps herself private and engages in great praise to the Lord. Zechariah, for nine months, rejoices, gives thanks, all quietly from the inside, waiting for the day 
when he can finally open his mouth and give God the praise that is due. So wrapping this up, here are a couple points I want to make and we'll be done. God is sovereign, friends, over the pleasurable and the painful. Your Bible leaves you no room for any other doctrine. He is the one who gives and takes away. He is the one who opens the womb and closes it. He does it. He ordains it. You can throw all of your problems back in his lap and say, you could have kept me from this. You could have prevented this. You could have cured it quickly. God, I give it to you. He is sovereign. Secondly, he is not condemning his friends when he ordains their days or years or lifetimes of suffering. There is no covenant of works going on right now, whereas if, if you obey, you will not hurt, and if you disobey, you will hurt more because we look around the world and we find plenty of people who don't seem to have any appreciation for God that seem to be thriving in a lot of ways that you're not. There's no covenant of works going on here between his pleasure and his pain. And God is not apathetic. He's also not weak. And he's also keeping score. There will be a day when he gives to all those who are found in Christ all the pleasures he promises and all those who are not found in Christ all the painful damnation that they have earned. God is sovereign and he's not condemning you you don't have to look at your life and say, am I suffering this because of that? You just don't get to make those connections ever. Thirdly, God is not condemning his friends when he refuses to answer their prayers with a yes. You, just because he hasn't showed up and done what you have said doesn't make him not loving. He always answers, sometimes with a yes, sometimes with a no, but he's doing what's best for his kingdom and what is best for his children. So you don't get to have a prosperity theology that says if I name it, I claim it. If I whoop up enough faith, he's going to heal it, which leads you to, well, then why is my loved one dead? Well, I must not have had enough faith whooped up. That's not good theology. God is sovereign. He's not condemning his friends while they suffer and he's not condemning his friends when he answers with a no. Look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a friend of God. Jesus Christ suffered as was ordained by the Father. Jesus Christ called out, Father, can't you take this cup from me? The Father's answer is no. Fourthly, God often has a mysterious plan. And why do I say often? Well, sometimes he reveals it, but he often has a mysterious plan to bless his children. He does not waste your pain. So Joseph never would have understood what God was doing when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Ruth would have never understood why so much pain for one lady. Over and over she was hurt. Paul, trying to serve Jesus, would not have understood at first why he was thrown in a Philippian jail. Sometimes God alerts you as to what he's doing. Once again, your friends may think they know. They don't know. You can feel free, feel free to ignore those friends who know exactly why God does what he does. 
You are not told that you will know the mysterious why behind the painful what. But God desires faith. He likes it when he hears from us, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. He likes the response of Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He likes it when you're Abraham and Sarah saying, I don't know where I'm going, but you're leading me that direction, so in that direction I go. Where he leads me, I will follow. And God loves you. He cries with you during your barren days. We see him encouraging Elijah on the mountain and John on the Isle of Patmos and Jesus in the garden. So if these are horrible days of suffering for you, He's here. And God loves you and will disciple you during the faithless days. He won't turn His back on you. He'll just build faith. And so we see Mary and Martha lacking faith when Lazarus is dead, having greater faith by the time Jesus is done. We see Peter lacking faith in the courtyard right at the arrest of Jesus by having great faith later on in life. This is what he does. The fruit of the Spirit comes in, grants us faith. Then the final thing, God loves us and promises us that we will be singing in the final day when he keeps his word. In the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God used their pain to accomplish many things. In our case, he may be using our pain to promote a longing for resurrection and eternity or to increase our prayer life or to help us become more efficient in the practice of sanctification or to grant us greater fellowship with people who can help walk us through the tougher days. He may be using our pain to display his miraculous power in answer to our prayer, maybe just showing us the horrible effects of the fall. He could be developing a testimony and a story which others may watch and others may tell. But he is sovereignly and mysteriously promoting his kingdom. And he is humiliating and defeating the devil as he did with Job. And so even if you don't understand what he's doing in this life, there will be a day when you're that joyful saint. And you're gathered with friends like Tom Casey, Mitchell Morton, Art Pearson, Harvard, the apostles, our other loved ones who have passed away. And we're able to be with Jesus. And we'll all be able at that point to say it makes sense now. We're understanding. 